Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. As I mentioned last week, eight is a wonderful, wonderful book, chapter, life-altering moment in our lives when we come together and we realize that no matter how much we've sinned, no matter how much we get things wrong, and no matter how many times people tell us we're wrong, God keeps His promises. God continues to love us. God continues to bless us in spite of our own getting in our own way. And some people, like the 23rd Psalm, or the third chapter of John, or even Hebrews chapter 11. And they're all wonderful, wonderful pieces of Scripture. And you may even have your own personal favorite chapter, but without a doubt, Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. And as I began Romans a couple years ago, or a year and a half now ago, I was looking forward to getting to this point. I was looking forward to getting to this point. And when I was in seminary, I memorized Romans chapter 8 in the King James Version. And a lot of what I believe about salvation and about the Spirit-filled life comes from this chapter. And sometimes people wonder what heaven is going to be like. We all wonder that from time to time. And I heard a funny joke the other day about three blind mice who went to heaven. And when they got to heaven, the three blind mice were no longer blind. And so St. Peter said, I want to see you in heaven. So I'm going to give each of you some roller skates. So the three blind mice took off across heaven and examined it on their roller skates. And about a week later, Garfield the cat died and went to heaven. And after Garfield the cat had been in heaven for about a week, St. Peter said... How do you like heaven? Garfield said, it's wonderful. But the thing I like the best up here in heaven is those meals on wheels. <laughs> now, I don't know about cat and mice in heaven, but sometimes Christians spend all of their earthly lives saying, oh, I just can't wait to get to heaven. But you see, the truth about the good news of Jesus Christ is we don't have to wait until we get to heaven. We can have a lot of heaven right now in our lives. And while we're still alive, we don't have to go through a cemetery to have the life of heaven in you right now. Like that good old gospel song says, Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. But if you don't ever understand what the spirit-filled life is all about, you'll pretty much live in spiritual defeat and misery, and you won't enjoy much heaven in your life. Now, Romans 8 is all about how to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And a man by the name of Spiner said in Romans 8, we see the brightest truth in the Word of God. He said, basically, if you think of the Bible as a ring... And if you think of Romans as being the biggest diamond set in that ring, Romans 8 would have to be the pinnacle and the point 
of that diamond. You start off with no condemnation in Romans 8, and hopefully you guys have that memorized after last week. But we, have, we start with no condemnation in Romans 8, and we end up with no separation. And in between, you have all the things working together for good and for them that love the Lord. So I want to talk to you about how this spirit-filled life and as spirit-filled Christians, we can make four wonderful affirmations this morning. Keep your Bibles open because we will make each four of these statements as we read those four verses. First of all, we need to know that God has said that we are not condemned for our sin. We are not condemned for our sin. As spirit-filled Christians, you and I can say, I am not condemned for my sin. As I said last week, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good, some of you are repeating it with me. You remember. Now when I memorize this verse in King James Version, there are some extra words there. And without a doubt, those words are not found in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Actually, those words are better found down in chapter 4, where we read at the end of chapter 4, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. All verse 1 says is simply, there is therefore. Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. And what do the words of no condemnation mean? The phrase no condemnation actually comes from two Greek particles, kato, which means down, and krino, which means to judge down. Have you ever seen those movies where the Roman emperor is sitting on a throne and prisoners are brought before him, and he decides whether they are voted up or down? I talked about that last week with Caesar, remember, up and down? But that's basically the meaning of the word. And the Bible says that those of us who are in Christ, there is absolutely no down judging and no condemnation. But let me tell you, that doesn't mean that we don't receive judgment as Christians. That doesn't mean that we don't receive judgment as Christians. So don't misunderstand that. There are two future judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, which is for Christians only. That is not to determine whether you are lost or saved, but that's the judgment that Jesus will give every believer as to our faithfulness. And that's when rewards will be passed out. That's when we'll receive the crowns that we will cast down at his feet. There is no condemnation, but there is judgment for Christians. But there's another future judgment talked about in Revelation 20. And this is the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of condemnation and only lost people will be there. And so Romans 8.1 doesn't say that there won't be any judgment for Christians. What it says is basically there is no condemnation, no katokrino, because it says we are in Christ. So in Christ basically means that we are declared righteous. The positional, that is the positional point. We are declared righteous. Now I want you to think about that phrase in Christ for just a moment. Because it's one of Paul's favorites here. 
He says it 64 times here, just in Romans 8 alone. But in all of his writings, he says it 164 times. That's pretty amazing. must be pretty important to him, so it must be pretty important for us. To him, the essence of the Christian life was to be in Christ. And here are two things that it means. When you are in Christ, you can say, I am declared righteous. You can also say that I am declared righteous by God. The only way you can ever be righteous in the eyes of God is to be in Jesus Christ. The only way. That is the only way. In Philippians 3.9, it says, I want to be found in Christ, in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Here's what that really means. When you and I put our faith in Jesus and we turn away from our sin and we become, we become Christians, God looks at us as in Christ Jesus. He no longer looks at us as unrighteous sinners. Instead, he looks at us through the filter of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And although we are not perfect people, And although no one is a perfect person, God points his finger at you and he points his finger at me. And he says, if you're born again, you are righteous. He says, when I look at you, my child, I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you'd better stay in Christ because you get outside of Christ and there's no righteousness. Stay in Christ and that's where you find the righteousness. Makes perfect sense, right? Amen. It's like Noah and the ark. Everyone knows the story of Noah and the ark. And remember, God told Noah to build a big boat. And he said, I'm going to send judgment on the earth. And the only way to escape my judgment is to get in the ark. Simple. So they brought all the animals into the ark. And then the Bible says, God welcomed Noah and his family into the ark. And he did something very profound. He closed the door. He closed the door. Now that doesn't mean that Noah drove eight pegs in the side of the boat and they had to hang on for dear life during that storm. We don't read about that. But no, they were safe in the ark because they were not, they were not touched by the judgment of God. And when you and I become Christians, we are in Christ just as these people were in the ark. And we are saved from the judgment of God. So we call that positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. We are in the position of being in Christ. So therefore, we are righteous. When we look at society today, and there's an illustration that's used very commonly today, and it is that of a sinking ship. And we are all on that sinking ship. The question now is, is how many people are we going to get off that ship before it's too late? That's what God is warning us here. Now is the time. Therefore, now. Therefore, now. So in Christ, if we are in Christ, we are in a place where we desire to do right. We are in a place where we desire to do what's right. And that's the practical side of things. 
We're moved on from positional, but now we're in the practical side of things. When we are in Christ, we can also say, I decide to do what's right. I decide that I am going to do what's right. I call that practical righteousness. Because there is a daily living out of good deeds and the Christian life. But listen, we do not, we do not do that to be saved. We do not do that to be saved. We do that because we are saved and that's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for us. And that's why a lot of people love Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship. We are God's worksmanship. And what that means is God is kind of like a heavenly handyman. And he has a shop and he's, he's working on us. We are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is something that he's already thought about. And he's thought about it for each and every one of us sitting in this room. Now when we are in Christ, we're safe from the punishment and judgment of God. Again, that's positional righteousness. And when we're in Christ, we choose to live a righteous kind of life. Someone has said in a poem, I cannot work my soul to save that work my Lord has done. But I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. I'm going to live righteously because I love Jesus. Not to be saved, but because I love Jesus. Along with that, we also know that we are not constrained to sin. We are not constrained to sin. So here's the first metaphorical knot that the devil can't untie. I am not condemned for my sins. And the second knot the devil can't untie is I am not constrained to sin. I am not constrained to sin. There is nothing that can force you to sin anymore. Did you know that? You are not forced to sin any longer. It's your choice. It is your choice. There is nothing that can force you to sin anymore. We can read about that in Romans 8 too. Look at there now. Because though Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. See, now there, there are two statements we need to make here. First of all, the old law bound us. In other words, sin and death kept me from the righteousness of the Lord. The old law bound us. And before we came to Christ... There was a law working that had a stranglehold on you and I, and we were enslaved to it. It had us wrapped up and bound, unable to move. But what was that law? Sin and death. Sin and death. For those who might not know what the law of sin and death is, it's really simple. The Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's the law of sin and death. Put it another way. Look at Romans 6.23, which says, The wages of sin is death. 
That's the law of sin and death that had a strangle grip on us before we came to know Christ. That's the old law. Secondly, the new law frees us. The new law frees us and gives us the spirit of life. Verse 2 says, the new law frees me. In other words, it has liberated me. It has set us free. And what is this new law? It is the law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the new law. I'm sorry, from the law of sin and death. So, let's think about the word spirit for a minute. The reason chapter 8 is all about the Holy Spirit is this. Paul is going to use the word spirit 21 times in this one chapter. And all the other chapters put together, he's going to use it 13 times. But in this one chapter this morning, he says it 21 times. Now, the English word spirit is translated from the Greek word pneuma. Some of you are probably very familiar with that, especially if you work with tools. Pneuma. Have you ever heard of the phrase, that's a pneumatic tire? Or a pneumatic pump? Pneumatic drill? It has something to do with air. It has something to do with air. And because this Greek word for spirit, pneuma, it is also translated wind. Wind. Remember in John chapter 3 where Jesus talks about being born of the spirit and he says, the wind blows where it will and nobody knows where it's coming from or where it's going. He's making a play on words here that is between spirit and the wind. And the Bible says the same word for breath is also the same word for spirit. So there is a correlation here that we're supposed to get. For instance, in the Old Testament, when it says God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he was giving Adam a spirit. He was giving Adam a spirit. And it's the same word in Hebrew. And it's the word for air. You and I live in the air, but also the air had better live in us. We are in Christ, but also Christ is in us. There are some beautiful truths you can see there. And if you put a boat into the water, there may be wind, but it's not until you raise those sails that the wind feels and feeds those sails. You may be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but it's not until you yield to that Holy Spirit and the power of that Holy Spirit and allow it to fill your life will it move you along. You see, there's a new law operating, and it's the law of the Spirit. The whole point Paul is trying to make here between chapter 7 and chapter 8 is this. Remember in chapter 7 that he says, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And those bad things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And the good things I want to do, I don't do. Well, now we move into chapter 8 and it says, you see, there's a new law operating here. And these two are struggling against each other. And like I said, a Christian life is a hard life because we are constantly battling between these two concepts, so to speak, that God has warned us about. And because sometimes we expect perfection of ourselves, and God doesn't expect perfection out of us, but we expect it of ourselves. It's funny how that works, but that's how we get tripped up. 
That's how we don't live in chapter 8. We're living in chapters 1 through 7. We're allowing the old law to take firm hold of our lives. When God is saying clearly, live in chapter 8. You want heaven? You can have it now. Don't wait. Don't wait. You see, it is a growing experience. So let me kind of illustrate it this way. All of you who are parents or grandparents, raise your hand. Should be most of us. But in this room, know the joy. You all know the, the joy of watching a child or a grandchild take their first steps, do you not? And this is generally how it happens. When they get to about 10 months or wherever it is in their developmental stage, they are operating under the old law of crawling around the floor. But then they decide they want to operate under the new law of walking. So usually mom or dad or grandma or grandpa will get down on their knees and the other parent will hold the child and they'll say, go to dad or go to mom or go to grandpa or grandma. And have you ever noticed that when the child takes its first step, it's so excited? The joy on their face? And they have this big grin on their faces, right? They, they look like a little Frankenstein when they're walking, but they've got a smile on their face. And I don't know any child anywhere who could walk immediately, right? What happens when they take those first steps? They fall, right? They take a couple steps and then they fall. Now, when that child falls, do you as a parent or grandparent go over to the child and say, Boy, that was terrible. You barely made any progress whatsoever. Do we say that? No, what do we say? We say, we pick them up. And we say, hey, let's try that again. Let's try that again. And to begin with, the child is going to fall more than they walk. But hopefully as they proceed, they'll walk more than they'll fall. And you know... Folks fall at all ages, right? In fact, I understand as you get closer towards the end, you fall even more. But you're going to walk more than you're going to fall. And the Christian life is a growing experience. And you may fall some. But as you grow spiritually, you're going to walk more than you fall. You see, the Christian life is a series of ever-increasing challenges and, and demands because walking isn't the only challenge that we have in our life. Now, there's a story of a man who's reminiscing about this particular kind of illustration. He says, I remember a few years after my daughters walked, they were ready to learn how to ride a bicycle. He says, I put them on a bicycle and you know, they didn't ride it the first time. They fell over. But I didn't say, oh, you are terrible at that. You fell off. You didn't even get very far. You'll never ride a bicycle. No, he says, I picked them up and I said, let's try it again. We put the training wheels on them for a little while until they finally learned. And when we took the training wheels off, they were off and running. You see, people still fall off bicycles, but a good bicycle rider is going to stay up more than they fall. And when I say the Christian life is a series of increasing challenges, it's like 
when your youngest daughter, he says, it's like when your youngest daughter gets her driver's permit. And one night after church, I said, this daughter's name, I went, I want you to drive home. Now imagine the excitement on her face, or his face if it's the son. I want you to drive home. Ooh, yeah, I can't wait for that, right? And of course, the parent or a grandparent, you're internalizing, how am I going to survive this? How am I going to get home without a dent in the car? How am I going to get home with both my limbs and everything else attached to me, right? And he says, now she's a wonderful, safe driver, but when she was just beginning, she wasn't very good. In fact, that night, driving home from here to our house was a pretty dangerous experience. He says, I prayed a lot. I got right with God. We saw parts of the road we've never seen before. He says, in fact, and this is no lie, when we drove up to our house, there was a car that had been following us for about a half a mile. And he stopped in front of our house, and after we pulled into the garage, I didn't know who it was. And so I walked up to his car, and I said, sir, can I help you? And he said, yes, I'm an off-duty police officer, and I just wanted to know if somebody was drunk driving that car. <laughs> then he goes on to say, she's now a good driver. She's now a good driver. And when she was just learning, do you think that I was angry with her? He says, no. He says, I had patience. And the point that he was trying to make is some Christians live in chapter 7 and only stay in chapter 7 and only occasionally visit chapter 8. And that may be true of spiritual infants. But as we grow as a Christian, we ought to spend most of our time in Romans 8 and only occasionally slip back into chapter 7. So where do you live most of your time? Do you guys know what my job as a preacher is? Some of you think you do. But do you know what my true job as a preacher is? It's very simply this. It's to get you from living in chapter 7 to start living in chapter 8. We're paying you to do that? But that's, that's what it is. We need to continue to move on to chapter 8. Realizing that God's promises are true. Having a little faith. Understanding that I don't have to live a life of sin. Understanding that God has placed us in a position we no longer have to worry about those things. But as human nature will tell us, no, no, you got to come back here. You need to feel guilty for what you've done. You need to feel guilty for all the sin that you've partaked in your life and will partake in your life. But God is saying no. He goes, you want to be a part of heaven? You can do it now. Free yourself of that bondage. Understand that my promises are true. It's a wonderful thing when we realize it. But I also know, and you also know, that it's a fleeting thought from time to time. But God says you need to stay there. We need to stay there. We need to be focused on what he's trying to tell us here. We need to switch from the spirit of the law, living a spirit-filled life. And also to understand 
that we are not charged with our sin. We are not charged with our sin. The law required what we couldn't give. Do we understand that? The law required what we couldn't give. So here we have the third knot that the devil is not able to untie. Number one, we're not condemned for our sin. Number two, we're not constrained to our sin. But number three, we are not charged with our sin. When you are arrested, the arresting officer says, you are under arrest, and here's the charge. Well, as you read chapter 8, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be the sin offering. And so he, meaning Jesus, condemned sin in the sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So God met us there and said, I know you're sinful. And he knew that we couldn't deny that we were sinful. But he says, I'm going to give you a way to get past that. I'm going to give you the cliff notes of what it is to be a Christian and what it means to be righteous and in Christ. He gives us those cliff notes. And what that means is you and I were facing a capital charge. And that charge is sin against the holy God. But God says, here's the law. Have you lived up to that law? And your response would be, no, sir, no, your honor. We have not lived up to that law. The law required something that you or I couldn't give. The law required something that I couldn't give, you couldn't give, and that is perfection. Perfection. And we stand guilty as charged. But now when it said in verse 3, when the law was unable or powerless to do through my sinful flesh, God did it anyway. God did it anyway. The Father sent his Son to offer himself for us. Another little story for you. It talks about this individual. And he said, when I was just a teenager and serving a little church down in South Alabama... We had this sweet, dear lady who was just a saint. And she told a story one time that I think explains that verse better than anything I ever read in a commentary or learned in seminary. And in order to understand this story, he says, I want you to know that in the olden days, women used to cook. Now, I know women still cook. So this is obviously a dated story. But he's saying this. He goes, women used to cook. And there was a time... When they used to cook, and well, this lady's sister, Wiggins was her name, was cooking a pork roast one day, and she overcooked it because time got away from her, and when she pulled it out of the oven, she took a fork and put the fork in the roast to pick it up and put it on the plate. But she said, I couldn't do it. The problem wasn't with the fork. The problem was with the meat, because it was falling apart. It was so loose, right? It was cooked to the point where it was just falling apart. And she told us the law was like that fork. A perfectly good fork. But that roast was like our sinful nature. But what the law was unable to do, she said, I took a spatula and I stuck it under that roast and picked it up and put it on the plate. See, that's a picture of what the law was unable to do because we were sinful flesh. And then God 
came along, and the spatula becomes like his act of uh, uh, salvation or his incarnation. He sent his son to do what the law couldn't do for us. And that's the second statement I want you to notice when it says we are not charged. It says, the father sent his son to offer himself for us. And therefore, the father sent his son to offer himself as a sin offering. The scenario is this. We stand before God, guilty as charged. But the Lord Jesus comes and steps in and he says, Father, it is correct. He or she is guilty. But I choose to take their punishment. I offer my life for their lives as they become my sin offering. And there is some powerful truth in chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But what that doesn't mean is that he, he... He didn't mean he came in sinful flesh. It was like sinful flesh, but he didn't sin. Understand that. It doesn't say he came in the likeness of flesh because it was real flesh. What it means is that in every way we have been tempted, in every way every person in this room has ever been tempted. Jesus experienced the exact same temptation. He experienced what we've experienced. The difference here is he never gave in to it. He never gave in to it. He was sinless. And he's the only one who will ever meet the requirement of this law. It was fulfilled in him. That's why it says in Isaiah chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his wounds, we are healed. And what that means is Christ took our sins and he took them out of the way. He says, be gone. They're no longer a part of you. And most of you are familiar with the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, right? Many of you know the story behind the hymn. Maybe you don't. Horatio G. Spafford wrote it as he was sailing over the Atlantic Ocean to be reunited with his wife after his daughters had died at sea. To know that makes the words a little more meaningful. But to me, the best verse in that whole hymn is the third verse that says this, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And any any born-again believer can say, I am not charged with my sin. And finally this morning, the fourth affirmation that we can make is this. We are no longer controlled by sin. We are no longer controlled by sin. So here's that fourth knot that the devil is trying to untie, but he's unable to. I am not condemned. I am not constrained. I'm not charged. But he says, I am not controlled by my sin. Look at the last part of chapter 8, verse 4. Just like the last two or three lines where he talks about spiritual Christians. He says, who do not live according to the sinful nature, 
but according to the Spirit. What that means is that there is an old nature at work. In other words, chapter 7. And, but also that there's a new nature at work. And we talked about that with the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And as a Spirit-controlled Christian, there's something that we must do. There's something that we must do. And number one, that is a Spirit-filled Christian chooses to say no to the urges of that sinful nature. Number one, we must say no to the urges of that sinful nature. And how many times do you have to say that? Like in the last five minutes, maybe. No! I'm not going to fall asleep. No! I'm not going to worry about what I'm having lunch today. Right? See? But he's saying that. He's saying how many times do you have to say that to yourself? Every day, every hour, every 30 seconds... I don't know. It just depends, right? It just depends. You have to keep on saying no. You realize that? It's not something you say no to and then, oh, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm sure it's taken care of. Oh, lo and behold, it rears its ugly head, right? We have to continue to say no. Say, I'm not going to give in to this temptation. No, I'm not going to think that dirty thought. And no, I'm not going to drink. No, I'm not going to eat that. And no, I'm not going to give in. You have to keep saying no, no, no. But secondly, a spirit-filled Christian chooses to say yes to the impulses of the Holy Spirit. We have to continue to say yes to the calling of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, a spirit-controlled Christian is one who chooses to say yes. We have to continue to say yes to let the love of Jesus be exhibited in our lives. We have to choose to say, yes, Holy Spirit, give me the peace of Jesus. Give me the peace of Jesus. I choose to say yes to the patience of Jesus, to the goodness of Jesus, to the gentleness of Jesus. I choose to surrender to you, Holy Spirit, who lives within me. You and I as Christians still have that choice every day. We can choose to say yes, or we can choose to say no. The problem with some people is that they think they can't get over this law of sin and death. Let me demonstrate. There's a physical law that I'm sure more of you you more or less know about, but let me demonstrate this. Can man fly? I'm asking. Can man fly? What if I asked that question 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago? Can man fly? You remember in Greek mythology the story of Daedalus and his son Icarus? Well, he fashioned feathers into wings held together by wax so that they escaped from an island. But Icarus flew too high and close to the sun, and according to the story, the sun melted that wax and Icarus fell to his death. Right? There's just one problem. Since the beginning of time, man has fostered a dream to be able to fly. And there's a problem. There's this thing called gravity. There's this thing called gravity. It wasn't really until the 20th century that some people decided 
there is another law that can override and supersede the law of gravity, and that's called the law of aerodynamics. The law of aerodynamics. You know this. To illustrate how an airplane flies, it's real simple. Take a strip of paper, blow on top of that paper, and you'll see the power of gravity overcome when the paper goes up instead of down when I blow on top of it. Stanley will demonstrate. He does this in science all the time. But there's a law of aerodynamics that says when wind is going faster over the top of a surface than it is below a surface, something called lift is created. And that's all an airplane wing is. It's flat on the bottom and curved at the top. And as it goes through the air, the air going faster over the top than over the bottom produces lift. Now that law has always been in existence in this universe, but it wasn't until December 17, 1903 that Orville and Wilbur Wright really applied it. They took a little rickety aircraft weighing only 750 pounds total, passenger, engine, airframe, and Orville Wright flew for 12 seconds. 12 seconds. And they made three more flights that day, and Wilbur flew 59 seconds, a world record. Now, like a lot of you, we've gotten on those airplanes, the 737s and the 747s, and as running down the runway, it weighs 300 tons, 300 tons. But that jet takes off and flies for 11 hours to the other side of the world. And do you know why? There is a law of gravity that can be overcome by the law of aerodynamics. You may say, so what? So what? Did you know that the law of aerodynamics is worthless unless you choose to fly? It's worthless unless you choose to fly. It doesn't mean one thing to you unless you decide you're going to the airport and get on an airplane. For you, there is no law of aerodynamics. There is only the law of gravity because you choose not to fly. Another question of mankind through the ages, along with can a man fly, is also the question, can a man or a woman be holy? Can a man or a woman be holy? Can a man and a woman live godly? The reason we can't is because of that old law of sin and death. I call it the gravity of depravity. You've probably heard that before. But there is a law of the spirit of life that can overcome it. And yes, you can soar above that sin. And you can live holy and righteously. Here's the application. A life of holiness is impossible unless you choose to yield to the Holy Spirit. And this message is for us Christians. And if I could say a little magic formula or push a magic button for every Christian, did you know what that would be? It would be that I would tell you to live in Romans chapter 8. Period. Live in Romans chapter 8. Because it will change you. It will change your marriage. It will change your job. It will change your family. And it would change your attitude about life because it changes everything. It changes everything. But here's the kicker. You have the choice to say yes or no. You have the choice 
to say yes or no. Amen? Dave, come and lead us in our song of benediction this morning. As we go out into our world, if you will, this week, I hope that this, what we're going to sing, will be top of heart for you. You know, we're aware of advertising, top of mind. They keep repeating things so that first thing you think of when that situation comes. But with God, it's top of heart. This week, take this, embrace this truth as we sing this verse of It Is Well With My Soul. My And Heavenly Father, as we leave this building this morning, I pray that you open our eyes and our hearts to the opportunities that you will place before us, Lord. And I know we live in a sinful world, in a world that lives in chapters 1 through 7. But Lord, you've given us the promise and the instruction that we are to live in Romans chapter 8 of a chapter that preaches hope, that preaches that you love us, that you take care of us. And Lord, you take care of those who seek you earnestly. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that that translate into us living that godly life so that others might recognize it in us. And as it was mentioned this morning in a meeting, that Lord, if we are accused of being Christians, I pray that the evidence makes us guilty. Lord, I thank you so much for your love and for the love of this church and for the love of its people. And Lord, as we leave today, I pray that those who do not know you will come to know you in some facet of their life and that they will be able to say when they meet you in person, Lord, you will say to them actually that you are a good and faithful servant. Welcome to your life. Lord, thank you so much for your blessings. And it's in your name we pray this morning. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. 
If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.